Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, uh, good afternoon, everyone. This is uh, Kennard speaking. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God Biblical Instructional Program. Give me about a couple of, uh, actually probably about a minute. I'll be right back. Okay, sorry about that. Um, what we're going to talk about today is uh, Sukkot and what it means, not only to people who believe uh, in observing your days, but to future prophetic fulfillment of Sukkot. Also, um, let's check out the world news here. It's been a rough week for me, but the um, good news is I should have some more time to do some Bible studies for this program and and for other people, so that's the good news. Let's look at what's going on. Watch.org here. Um, if you want to turn with me, and it's www.watch.org. Well, the, the latest headline here: Iranian Defense Minister Israel should set red lines for itself. Is and he states here: Israel should draw a red line for itself, not for Tehran. Iranian Defense Minister Ahmad. Zahidi said Saturday in the speech quoted by AFP. Referring to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's recent address to the General Assembly, uh, that's the uh, United Nations General Assembly, Zahidi said Netanyahu should be informed that if having the atomic bomb is passing the red line, the Zionist regime that possesses dozens of nuclear warheads and weapons of mass destruction has passed the red line years ago and it has to be stopped. Well, of course, they're using rhetoric and uh the concern for the world of course is if iran has a nuclear bomb what they would do to israel <laughs> so uh that's the reason why the world does not want them to have a nuclear bomb so that's that's the issue there with that let me check uh alex jones website here infowars you can go come along with me if you want infowars.com uh, I, I implore you, encourage you to go to his website. He has a lot of information 
on here that you're not going to hear on your local or national nightly news uh, because the elite covers that stuff up. But uh, so far, anyway, the Internet is not regulated. So uh, I know eventually probably, uh, well, I know eventually they will regulate the uh, Internet. I know in other countries, in China, uh, the Internet is regulated. But so far, um, the Internet is not regulated here. So... Um, recent headline here on this website says Ambassador Shapiro. Let me go back. Uh, he says U.S. made necessary preparations for Iran attack. Uh, let me see if there's anything else here worth reading. Man dies in police. Student loan default rates rise as federal scrutiny grows. Yeah, the reason why the student loan rates are rising up, folks, is because People can't find any decent jobs, so they don't really have, this country doesn't have any really good training programs uh, for people who want to start a business. That reminds me of a book that just came out that are good for people to read. It's called The Reluctant Entrepreneur. It's called The Reluctant Entrepreneur. You can get it on Amazon.com. The reason why I'm talking about it today because many people need to, uh, have the knowledge to start their own business now because you can't rely on these employers. These employers don't care about you, uh, most of them. All they care about is their bottom line, uh, income coming in and productivity. Uh, they don't care whether or not uh, you're making sales. Uh, well, they do care about it, but they don't care that um, there's an issue with you making sales. They just want results. And, and not just that. It's just other things, uh, other occupations. Uh, they're just looking at the bottom line because the economy is really messed up right now, and a lot of people are in a state of denial about that. And we're just printing money out of thin air, and we're increasing our debt. Our national debt is way over, I think, $16 billion right now. But our real debt, when you include the entitlement programs, when you include the entitlement programs, which are you know financial aid, Medicaid, uh, welfare, and so forth, it, it can be, or it is, over $200 trillion. So no country can exist for long in their current state economically uh, being in that type of debt situation. So that's something that uh, you, you must understand, and that's something that we as a nation, I, I hope anyway, wakes up to reality. But unfortunately, that's not happening, and people are just going along like everything is okay as long as things are okay with me. And... Yeah, here's a recent article here that uh, is interesting here. 14 signs, 14 signs that the world economy is getting weaker. So th this is important to focus on here. Uh, this is by the, um, let me pull it up here. Yeah, 14 signs that the world economy is getting weaker. This is by Michael Snyder. Matter of fact, this is a good website that I recommend you go uh, is well documented and, and it has facts and, and certain uh, links that you can go to to verify the information. But I'm getting this off the um, Alex Jones website. 14 signs that the world economy is getting weaker by Michael Snyder. It says the United States is not the only one with massive economic problems right now. The truth is that just about wherever you look around the globe, things are getting even worse. China is experiencing a substantial economic slowdown. And Japan has resorted to yet another round of money printing 
in an effort to keep the Japanese economy moving. So they're doing quantitative easing or printing money out of thin air, too. Unemployment in Europe continues to get even worse, and the rise this week in Spain and in Greece have been absolutely frightening at times. This is uh, article was written today, actually yesterday, September 28, 2012. In the United States, there are a whole host of signs that another recession is approaching, and a number of American CEOs that say that they plan to eliminate jobs in the coming months is rapidly rising. The world economy is more interconnected today than ever before, and that means that we are all in this together. Just remember what happened back in 2008 and 2009. The economic pain that started on Wall Street was felt in every corner of the planet. So anyone that believes that the United States or any other major nation, for that matter, is going to escape the next wave of economic crisis is simply not being realistic. Why do you think central banks all over the world are in panic mode right now? They are firing all of their ammunition and printing money like there is no tomorrow in an attempt to keep the system together. Again, quantitative easing, printing money out of thin air when you don't have the true currency, silver and gold, to back it up. Unfortunately, that's the reason why, by the way, silver and gold is going up. And I suggest if you have the money to invest in silver and gold to do so immediately. Anyway, unfortunately, it is not going to work. If the powers that be had an easy button that would quickly fix everything, they would have passed it or pressed it by now. But despite all their efforts, things continue to unravel. If you want to get an idea of where we are headed, just look at what is already happening in Europe. Unemployment has risen above 24% in Greece and above 25% in Spain. These two nations are on the bleeding edge of the next wave of economic problems. Unemployment is rising almost everywhere else in Europe, too, as well, and things are eventually going to get really bad in Asia and in North America, too. So hold on to your seatbelts. It is going to be a bumpy ride. Now, the following are 14 signs from around the globe that the world economy is getting weaker. Please pay attention to this, folks. Bible prophecy is coming alive. And I'm going to prove that to you after I read briefly these 14 signs around the globe that the world economy is getting weaker. Number one. Things in China do not look good right now. The Shanghai Composite Index fell to its lowest point in over three years earlier this week. Will the S&P 500 soon follow suit? Number two. The Bank of Japan has resorted to yet another round of money printing, quantitative easing, in a desperate attempt to try to bolster the faltering Japanese economy. Three. In Spain, violent demonstrations over the state of the Spanish economy just outside the National Parliament building in Madrid on Tuesday evening made headlines all over the globe, for those who don't have their head in the sand, of course. You can view videos of police brutally beating young Spanish protesters during those demonstrations. And if you go to this website, uh, Infowars.com, um, so that you can see this video, uh, just type in 14 signs that the world economy is getting weaker on Google. 14 signs that the world economy is getting weaker on Google, and then you'll be able to access this article, this very important article for you to read. Number four, as unemployment hovers around a 25% mark, foraging through garbage bins for food has become so rapid in Spain 
that one city has actually started putting locks on supermarket garbage pens, bins, rather, which is ridiculous, as a public health precaution. Number five, despite all the money printing that the ECB has been doing, the yield on 10-year Spanish bonds, the yield is, is what profit you make on uh, bonds, uh, has risen back up to about 6% again. The economic protests in Greece are getting completely and totally out of control. Just check out this description of the day of rage that took place in Greece earlier this week. I'll go ahead and read it. Police fired stun grenades and tear gas at protesters yesterday as tens of thousands poured into the streets of Athens as part of a nationwide strike to challenge a new round of austerity measures that are expected to cut wages, pensions, and health care once again. So no wonder they're going losing their minds. Dozens of youths, some masking their faces with helmets and T-shirts, hurled Molotov cocktails and rocks at police who fired back in an effort to scatter the angry crowds around the parliament building. More than 50,000 people are believed to have participated in the mass walkout in Athens alone. Number seven, the unemployment rate in France has risen for 16 months in a row. Let me underscore that again. 16 months in a row. And it's now the highest that has been in over a decade. Number eight, as I wrote about recently, the number of unemployed workers in Italy has increased by more than 37% over the past year. Number nine, new orders for durable goods in the United States fell by a whopping 13.2% in August. That was the largest decline that we have seen since the middle of the last recession, which was January of 2009. Number 10. According to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, U.S. Gross Domestic Product, or GDP, only grew at a 1.3% annual rate during the second quarter of 2012, as opposed to the 1.7% annual rate previously reported. The GDP is the total gross or sum of goods and services produced in this country. Number 11. The U.S. Postal Service is about to experience its second financial default in just the past two months. The U.S. Postal Service will default this week on a $5.6 billion congressionally mandated obligation to pre-fund retiree health benefits, marking the second time in two months the cash-strapped agency has done this. Number 12, it looks like General Motors is on a path that will lead to bankruptcy, in parentheses, again in the parentheses. Number 13, according to a recent survey conducted by State Street Global Advisors, 71% of investors in a survey of 300 around the world, including the largest pension funds, asset managers, and private banks, fear an imminent Lehman-like event. Oh, if you recall, Lehman Brothers went out of business, uh, which was a contributor to the uh, 2008 stock market crash. Number 14, according to a recent survey of American CEOs by Business Roundtable, the number of CEOs that plan to eliminate jobs has risen significantly from earlier this year. The CEO's decline in confidence comes alongside a worsening employment outlook. 34% of the 138 CEOs surveyed said in this quarter's survey that they expected their companies to cut jobs in the next six months, compared to just 20% in the second quarter. Likewise, only 29% say they expect employment to grow in the next half year. Only 29%, let me repeat that, only 29% 
say they expect employment to grow in the next half year, down from 36% last quarter. But the mainstream media in the United States would like us to believe that everything is getting better, as I just stated. The mainstream media would like us to believe that QE3 is going to, or quantitative easing, printing money out of thin air, is going to stimulate lots of new hiring all over America. <clears throat> and they are greatly celebrating the fact that the S&P 500 hit a five-year high on Thursday. Well, those on Wall Street should celebrate this monetary sugar high while they still can. Of course, quantitative three was going to cause stock prices to rise in the short term, in the short term. But the reality of the matter is that QE3 is not going to do a thing to stop the financial markets from crashing when the time comes for them to crash. Economies tend to flourish in a stable, predictable environment. When you start recklessly printing money, which is quantitative easing, easing. Uh, when you start recklessly printing money, quantitative easing, it may help your economic numbers in the short term, but it disrupts the stability of the system. And once you have created a tremendous amount of instability, it is really, really hard to convince people that you can create stability once again. When it comes to economics, confidence is one of the most important ingredients. If people lose confidence in the system, it almost does not matter what else you do. As I wrote about the other day, quantitative easing worked for the Walmart Republic for a little while, but in the end it resulted in total disaster. It will also end in total disaster for us, as the Bible prophecies predict, as I will go over. All over the globe, financial authorities are playing all sorts of games in an attempt to keep the system functioning smoothly. But these games are going to steadily undermine confidence in the system, and that is going to prove to be absolutely deadly. Take advantage of this period of relatively relative stability, rather. Take advantage of this period of relative stability while you still can, because when it is gone, it is not coming back. Well, I disagree with him. It is coming back, but it will come back on the hills of the Messiah when he lands his feet on the Mount of Olives. So anyway, folks, I read this because it's very important. I usually don't read articles like that uh, in detail, but I really feel that uh, almost every word in that article is very important for you to understand. This is the time that you must prepare. This is the time that you must understand that you are living in these end times, uh, in the in the perilous times of the 21st century. This century, the Messiah should be coming back, and he will be landing his feet on the Mount of Olives. We will discuss that in a little more detail today. But I needed to talk about this because we really need to be prepared for things, folks. Let me read one of my favorite scriptures in, in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 3, to hopefully provoke some of you, or most of you, or all of you who are listening to me today. Proverbs 22, verse 3, in the King James Version, a prudent man perceives the evil, and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Do you want to be punished? Do you want to suffer all these things that are going to occur here in perhaps the next few years? We have a war brewing in the Middle East. We have economic chaos all over the world, some parts worse than others. But it's going to get to the point where it's going to be so bad that it's going to affect the entire planet. Uh, Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Verse 5. 
And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand, symbolizing economics. Verse 6, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see that you hurt not the oil. And the wine, and I love Stern's, David Stern's um, commentary on this. I think it's one of the best that I've ever heard. In Revelation chapter 6, um, I'm going to read his commentary out of the Jewish New Testament commentary, which I suggest highly you get. It says right here, uh, his, actually I'm going to read uh, what he says about the, the first uh, four seals here, but uh, the part here. Uh, the third seal, he says, inequitable economic distribution or less likely scarcity, general scarcity of goods. And that's what we were reading about. Uh, the economy is getting so bad, it's going to be a scarcity of goods. All right, and then his commentary on verse 6 of Revelation chapter 6. He says, the rich are cushioned by their wealth from the effects of economic inequality and scarcity, but the poor, the poor, who must pay a day's wages, literally a denarius, for starvation rations are brusquely ordered not to meddle with or damage the olive oil, the wine. Now luxury is far beyond their means. And he quotes uh, a Jewish scholar here saying, Weighing the bread is a sign of a curse, according to Leviticus 26, verse 26. They shall dole out your bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. So that's what's occurring around the world, folks. I just read it to you. So again, as always, the scriptures always uh, are at the forefront and telling you what's going to happen in the future. And then in Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24 again, verse 1, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left one stone upon another, that should not be thrown down. That was a prophecy that was fulfilled, some say, in A.D. 69, 68, A.D. 70. Anyway, it was around that time when the temple was destroyed. Anyway, Matthew 24, verse 3, As he sat down upon the Mount of Olives, which he will be returning to the Mount of Olives, as I'll show you in Zechariah 14, which uh, has something to do with Sukkot. We're going to talk about that here soon. I just want to uh, give you some important information that you need to know about. Verse 4. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive or trick you. Verse 5. So that was the first sign that he told us, folks. Verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? The end of the world. With Sukkot again pictures. Verse 4. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. I'm reading the King James Version here. Verse 6. And you shall hear of wars, which we are doing as I'm speaking, on watch.org and other places, Iran versus Iraq. Just type that in there. And, or future World War Three, and you're going to get all kinds of articles and so forth. So those are the rumors that the greatest prophet of all time is telling us here, and you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. We've already had World War One. 
We've had World War II. We've had the Korean War. We've had the Vietnam War. We've had the, golf, two, the two Gulf Wars. World War III is coming, folks. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet, and we have all wars around the world. So anyway, in Matthew 24, verse 7, mistranslated word here, when it says nation, it should indicate a tribe or family. It can be translated nation here, but since kingdom is talked about here, obviously, in all likelihood, uh, ethnos, which is uh, Greek for nation, it should be translated um, family or tribe. So every family or tribe shall rise for I think the complete Jewish Bible version has the correct time. Yeah, here we go. Verse 7 in the complete Jewish Bible version. For peoples will fight each other. And this is talking about interfighting among families, communities, all over the world. For people will fight each other. All you got to do is turn, on, uh, turn the news and you know that Yeshua is right about this. Yeshua is Jesus' Hebrew name. For peoples will fight each other. Nations will fight each other. There will be famines and earthquakes in various parts of the world. And in verse 8, I'm reading this complete Jewish Bible version, all this is but the beginning of birth pains. The beginning of birth pains, folks. And that's what's happening. And and it, it's just, uh, and then in verse 11, verse 10, unfortunately, well, actually, let me read the whole thing here. Verse 9, at that time you will be arrested and handed over. He was talking about them, but this could be also a dual prophecy. Uh Remember, there's going to be many people slaughtered in the tribulation uh, that are believers, unfortunately. Uh, at that time, you will be or be converted over to believers. At that time, you will be arrested and handed over to the over to be punished and put to death, and all peoples will hate you because of me. So, Yeshua's true believers aren't very well liked, folks, because they stand for the truth. And I, as I, the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 59, which is a good chapter for you to read, truth is not very well liked in this end time. Verse 10, at that time, what is truth? Psalm 119, verse 142. Truth is the entire Torah of Yah, or Yah meaning short for God, uh, teachings and doctrines of Yah, or Elohim. Verse 10, at that time, many will be trapped into betraying and hating each other. Many false prophets will appear and fool many people. And many people's love will grow cold because of increased distance from Torah, or the teachings and doctrines and laws of God. So that's that's where we're coming at, folks, and, and we need to understand that. But um, that's enough bad news right now. I, I want to talk about some good news here. The good news of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Let me quote to you a scripture that will simplify this for you. What does the kingdom of God consist of? Well, let me quote this to you to begin. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 in the complete Jewish Bible version. Let me say this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot share in the kingdom of God. Nor can something that decays share in what does not decay. So, let's understand this scripture again. Let me say this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot share in the kingdom of God, nor can something that decays share in what does not decay or in a state of corruption. 
So the kingdom of God potentially will be a spiritual realm where there's no corruption or decay. All right? I want you to understand that and focus on that. In the King James Version, let's read it again. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit and corruption. So the kingdom of God in the simplest definition is a spiritual realm where there's no flesh and blood and there's no corruption. That is the kingdom of God, folks. In the simplest description, of course, it involves everything that Elohim rules over. But I want you to understand that the kingdom of God is center, uh, the, the center of focus of the kingdom of God is the fact that flesh and blood cannot inherit it, and it is a kingdom of incorruption. 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 Uh, incorruption means unending existence, immortality. It's a kingdom of immortality. And I just want you to really focus on that. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, that proves that we don't have immortality despite the false teaching of the Catholic Church and other churches, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, to be immortal means that you will never die again. Verse 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the Torah, or the law. All right? So let's understand what the kingdom of God is. It is a spiritual realm where flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God is the spiritual realm. And then next week I'm going to talk about the possibility of, of humans being created in this realm, but still for them to enter the spiritual realm of the kingdom of God, they must become incorruptible. So anyway, so that is the kingdom of God, folks. So let's let's focus on that. And Sukkot has everything to do with the kingdom of God. So let's read Revelation chapter 11. I'm looking for, I hope I'm alive, but even if I'm not alive, I will hear this because when the seven trump sounds, as let's read here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So far we've gone over in the past weeks Yom, um, Yom Teror, which is this following scripture I'm about to read to you. But anyway, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, 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 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read, um, read this in a complete Jewish Bible version here. Let me say this, brothers, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Let me say this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot share in the kingdom of God, nor can something that decays share in what does not decay. Excellent translation, verse 51. Look, I will tell you a secret. Not all of us will die. In other words, we won't die the normal way. But we will all be changed because you have to understand, even when you're changed from corruptible to incorruptible, there is a death. But this is the best way to die, though. 
Verse 52, it will take but a moment, the blink of an eye at the final shofar, or trumpet, for the shofar will sound, and the dead will be raised to, to live forever, and we too will be changed. Uh, verse 53, for this material which can decay must be clothed with imperishability. This which is mortal must be clothed with immortality. Verse 54, when what decays puts on imperishability, and what is mortal puts on immortality, then this passage in the Tanakh or the Old Testament will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed in victory. So we know that this will occur at the final shofar. Now, where is that in scriptures? Well, in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 15. The seven angels sounded his shofar, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world has become, which means they weren't, it was the devils, uh, and I explained that last week, has become, or the week before, has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will rule forever and ever. All right, so at the seventh trump, which is symbol, symbolized by Yom Teror, or the festival of trumpets, uh, the kingdoms of the world will finally become the kingdoms of our Lord, which is the Father and his Messiah, and he will rule forever and ever. Verse 16. All right, and then the 24 elders sitting on the throne in God's presence fell on their faces and worshiped God. And let's skip over to... I'm going to read this back in the King James Version here. In verse 18, And the nations were angry. You would think they would be happy, right? But no, they're angry. <laughs> and thy wrath is come, which is symbolized by Yom Kippur. I went over that last week. Remember, the, spring, the, the, the festivals of God. It starts out with the spring festival, which is the barley harvest. And then, it's, then it uh, goes on to the summer festival, which is symbolized by the wheat harvest. And then we have the fall harvest, which is represented by the fruit harvest, specifically grapes. And you're going to see here that the wrath has something to do with smashing grapes, or in the, in the figurative description, is human beings. Uh, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, the resurrection, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, to prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small or great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. This is the process, as I explained last week, of the separation of the wicked from the righteous, and it begins when his feet lands on the Mount of Olives. And hold your place here. It's going to end. Let me read to you when it's going to end, the separation of the righteous from the wicked. This begins Sukkot, when he lands on the Mount of Olives and, and, and separates the wicked from the righteous and purifies the earth initially. It's not the full purification. That's going to happen after the thousand of years. I'll talk about that next week. But anyway, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming, Verse 24, then comes the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall put down all rule and all authority and power. Verse 25, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. This reign is the picture of Sukkot, folks, the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 26, where he's going to tabernacle with us. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. When he says all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. In other words, the Father. The Father is not under the Son. The Son is under the Father. Verse 28, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son himself 
be subject unto him that puts all things under him, that God may be all in all. People that think that God and the Son are one being, this proves that they're not. How can God be in subjection to himself? That doesn't make any sense. How can God the Father be in subjection to himself? But anyway, getting back to Revelation, okay, and it says right here, verse 18, the nations were angry, and then verse 19, which is a picture of Yom Kippur here, uh, and the temple of God was open in heaven, because Yom Kippur, the, the Jew was hitting for that, is face to face. You'd be able to enter the Holy of Holies, at which uh, the New Jerusalem is going to be a gigantic Holy of Holies. <laughs> but that, I'll talk about that in detail next week. And the temple of God was open in heaven, and there was seen in his temple in the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. All right, and then the wrath of God here, which is described here, And uh, yeah, and uh, Revelation chapter fourteen, and this is a Yom Kippur picture here, and verse fourteen. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Verse fifteen. Another came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the crowd, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. This is the first resurrection here. And he that sat on the cloud thrusting the sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So this is the first resurrection. This is what this picturing. Now here's the the um, part that you don't want to be a part of here. Verse 17, And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So this this tells you that this is going to happen around this time. Okay, and then back, I told you the story again of how um, the Levites, what they would do with grapes, they would put them in some, some kind of um, area where they would smash the grapes, and that's what this is picturing, but this is picturing human beings being smashed. It said, thrust in thy sharp sickle, the grapes are uh, wicked human beings, and, cluster the, and, and, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Verse 19, and the angel thrust in the sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great wine press. That's what I was trying to say. They would use a wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden without the city, and the blood came out. Instead of grape juice, this is figuratively talking about human blood. And the blood came out of the wine press, even to the horse's bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs, which, let me look in the English version here, tell us says, okay, in the complete and contemporary English version of the Bible, it says the blood turned into a river that was about 200 miles long and about deep enough to cover a horse. So that that's going to happen in the future, ladies and gentlemen, to those who want to play games with God and, and, and be wicked, unfortunately. So, But that's what Yom Kippur pictures, but after that it's going to be peace on the earth. And let's let's go over here. Um, I have 21 minutes, 20 minutes here, so I have to speed it up. And, and perhaps I may go over a little bit. And if I do, then you can listen to the entirety of it about 30 minutes after the the program, because I I need to get all these important scriptures out. So if I do go over, I apologize, but uh, it happens like that sometimes. <laughs> this is not easy what I do here. It takes uh, you know some preparation and, and so forth. And but the good news is, like I said, I. I um my you know work situation has changed um I'm back working at home like like I should be and uh things would be a lot easier for me so sometimes I 
have had to do that, but uh, basically for the past eight years I've been able to successfully operate a home-based business in, in my home. And for those who are interested in doing that, uh, please email me. I can give you some information as well on how to do that. But anyway, Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 33. Let's go over the commandment here uh, of Sukkot. Uh, the festival of tabernacles. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be a feast of tabernacles, a cult, for seven days unto the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation or assembly. Or Moet, uh, that's what that's talking about, but uh, that also means in the original Hebrew, I'm going to look it up here, um, Mikrah, okay, uh, something called out that is a public meeting. That's what this is. You shall do no servile work therein. Servile means work of any kind. All right? Uh, work for profit. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. So during this time of season, folks, there's a lot of giving. All right? And you should be giving. And I'm going to read another scripture here that's popped in my mind. You should definitely be giving to the Levites, um, uh, spiritual Levites, Torah teachers like myself during this time. Uh, he expects you to do that. I'm going to show that to you. On the eighth day shall be a holy convocation unto you. You shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly, and you shall do no servile work therein. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall... Okay, all right, I'm done here. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> no, I'm not. Verse 37, these are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering and a meat offering, a sacrifice and a drink offering, everything upon this day. Beside the Shabbats of the Lord, and beside your gifts, and beside all your vows, and beside all your free will offerings, which you give unto the Lord. So God wants us to be givers. He wants us to give, give, give. You know, it's like Yeshua said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, give, and should be given unto you. Verse, and that's a commandment, not a suggestion. Uh, verse 39 of Leviticus chapter 23. Also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep a feast unto the Lord. Seven days on the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. All right, the eighth day we're going to talk about next week, which is symbolized by the new heavens and the new earth, verse 40. And you shall take on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows in the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days, verse 41. And you shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in a year. It shall be a statue forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And... Stating here, you shall dwell. Uh, this word means to sit down, to remain, uh, to sit down. That's what it means. In booths, seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. And, of course, uh, based on Ephesians uh, chapter 2, if you uh, become a believer of Messiah, you are automatically uh, part of the commonwealth of Israel. All right? So it applies to you as well. Verse 43, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Sukkot symbolizes that wilderness situation, that wilderness situation where you had to trust in uh, Yah or God to protect you. All right, in Deuteronomy chapter, uh, the focus on giving here, because I, I must quote this and for those who want a detailed description on how to give, when to give, and, and why you should give, uh, you should read my updated article, Tithes and Offerings. It's very important for you to understand that. And it talks about not just giving to, 
Torah teachers, but to be giving to giving to anyone. We were created to give, not to take or not to be stingy. We we were created to give, and God wants us to learn how to give. That that is really the true message of the Bible to to learn how to love God by loving Him and showing that you love Him by giving and sharing your possessions with other people. That's what will bring true peace to this world. Deuteronomy chapter 16. All right, and he talks about the three pilgrimage feasts here, or the feast that the Jews had to go to Jerusalem every year. And uh, it says right here in verse 16, Oh, wait a minute. Let me find out here. All right. Verse, yeah, Deuteronomy 16, verse 13. Thou shalt observe the Feast of Tabernacles of Sukkot seven days after thou hast gathered in the corn and thy wine. So this is the fruit harvest. Uh, verse 14. And thou shalt rejoice in thy feast, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy manservant and thy maidservant and the Levite, the Torah teacher, the stranger, and the fathers and the widow that are within thy gates. Seven days you shall keep a solemn feast unto the Lord thy God in the place which the Lord shall choose, because the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thy increase and in all the works of thy hands. Therefore you shall surely rejoice. Now, here's the scripture I want to point out. Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which starts off with Passover, and in the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, or Shavuot, and in the Feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty. So you shouldn't be appearing empty on these days. Every man shall give as he is able. He's not asking you to give a house or give your mortgage to, to Torah teachers or the poor. But he's asking you to give something, okay? According to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he has given thee. Okay, so that is a commandment. That's not, uh, <laughs> I'm not making that up, folks. So that's up to you, but it's my job as a Torah teacher to tell you, or minister, to tell you what you should do. And then the Lord backs this up as well. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Yeshua, he says, Give, and it shall be given unto you, good measure, and pressed down, and shaken together. He commands us to give. And running over shall men give unto your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. So based on how you give, God's going to give to you. So remember that as well. All right, Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Starting at verse 14. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel shall dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth into the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths. So you make booths from these items here. All right? So the people went forth and bought and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of the house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. 
and all the congregation of them that were come out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths, under the booths, for since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, or Joshua, until that day had not the children of Israel done so. And there was great gladness. So anyway, that's the commandment. And, you know, in, in Israel it's easier to do to sleep in them even. But in this country, the weather is not really what it's supposed to be around this time uh, in reference to fully doing this. So you, you use wisdom and you should try to eat in a tent or in a, you should try to do it as, exactly as the Bible states. If you don't have the money, do the best you can. That's what Yeshua stated, uh, worshiping these days in spirit and in truth. But the truth if you understand what the word truth is, the Bible definition of it, thy word is truth in John 17, verse 17, which the entire scriptures, the Old and New Testament. And also in Psalm 119, verse 142, it tells you the Torah, or the teachings and doctrines of Yah, or God, is the is what that means, the truth. Okay? So that's how we do it. And um, I have a description here on based on Chabad.org, how this is celebrated here. So I have about 10 minutes left, and let me just read what they state here. For 40 years, as our ancestors tra uh, traversed the Sinai Desert prior to their entry into the Holy Land, miraculous clouds of glory surrounded and hovered over them, shielding them from the dangers and discomforts of the desert. So this is from Chabad.org, how is Sukkot observed? Ever since, we remember God's kindness and reaffirm our trust in his providence by dwelling in a sukkah, or sukkah, a hut of temporary construction with a roof covering of branches for the duration of the autumn Sukkot festival. For seven days and nights, we eat all our meals in the sukkah, reciting a special blessing and otherwise regarded as our home. And here's a tradition that's unique to Sukkot. It's the taking of the four kinds in etrog, citron, a lulav, palm, flan, at least three hadassim, myrtle branches, and two aravat, willow branches. The Midrash tells us that the four kinds represent the various types of personalities that comprise the community of Israel or humankind, you might as well say, which intrinsic unity we emphasize in Sukkot. On each day of the festival, except Shabbat during the daytime hours, we take the four kinds. This is a Jewish tradition because it certainly isn't found in the Bible. Um, I don't think I had to do some research, but regardless, it's not something that he commanded uh, in the Torah. Recite a blessing over them, bring them together in our hands, and wave them in all six directions, right, left, forward, up, down, and to the rear. The four kinds are also an integral part of the holiday's daily morning service. Sukkot is also called the time of our joy. Indeed, a special joy pervades the festival. Nightly water-drawing celebrations reminiscent of the evening-to-dawn festivities held in the Holy Temple in preparation for the drawing of water for use in the festival service. Fill the synagogues and streets with song, music, and dance until the wee hours in the morning. Now, understand that water symbolizes the Holy Spirit. Sukkot runs from the 15th day through the 21st of Tishri. The first two days of this festival in Israel, only the first day, are a major holiday when most forms of work are prohibited. On the preceding nights, women and girls light candles, recite the appropriate blessings, and we enjoy nightly and daily festive meals accompanied by the Kiddush, which is a, a meal um, with uh, bread and wine and symbolizes the, the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua. Uh, the remaining days of the festival are intermediate days when most forms of work are permitted. We try to avoid going to work, writing, and certain other, well, 
you know, I don't see in the Bible where uh, you can't write on the Shabbat. So that's that's another Jewish tradition. And if you don't want to write, that's your business. But certainly isn't a Torah commandment as far as a written Torah. And certain other activities, many families use this time to enjoy fun family outings. And this is talking about the uh, intermediate days of, of Passover, uh, Unleavened Bread, and uh, Sukkot. And if you can take off, you should. You should. If you can't, then you, you need to work. But you should try to make an effort. You surely should try to make an effort to be able to enjoy all these days. You should. But if your job is in jeopardy or whatever, then we understand. But you should take at least the first and last day, the first and the eighth day off, according to, because that's a commanded assembly. So you should, uh, and it's a commanded Shabbat, high holy day, so you should take those days off. But you should make an effort to try to take the other days off. If you, if your job is not in jeopardy, then you should do all you can to take those days off. Okay? All right, so every day of Sukkot, including into intermediate days, we recite the complete Hallel, which is a recitement of uh, uh, music or uh, psalms, the Hashanat and Mushaf, and the Torah is read during the morning service. The seventh day of Sukkot is called Hoshana Rabbah, or the Great Salvation, which I'm, I'm going to show you, because I am going to go over today, so you guys are going to have to listen to this in its entirety, because I'm not going to shorten this message. This is very important. According to this tradition, the verdict for the new year, which is written in, on Rosh Hashanah and sealed on Yom Kippur, is not handed down by the heavenly court until Hoshana Rabbah. On this day, we encircled the Bima synagogue reading table seven times while holding the four kinds and offering special prayers. And this is interesting, the symbolism of this, and it makes perfect sense with the great right throne judgment that's talked about in, in the book of Revelation. Seven times while holding the four kinds and offering special prayers for prosperity during the upcoming year. During the course of the morning prayers, it is also traditional to take a bundle of five willow branches and beat them against the ground five times. All right. So Sukkot is immediately followed by the independent holiday and Shemini Aserets or Shemini Shemaserets or Simchat Tor, which we will talk about next week. All right. So, but let's focus on Sukkot and what it means. All right. So. Getting back to, well, I just want to read this from the Karite Corner website on properly constructing a sukkah. It says, uh, number one, any leafy tree that can give shade, compare Ezekiel 20, verse 28, a date palm and presumably any palm tree, any fruit tree, compare Leviticus 23 and uh, um, Nehemiah chapter 8, and Avel Nahal, usually translated as Willows of the Creek, based on Nehemiah chapter 8, which replaces Willows of the Creek and Myrtle Branches. It would seem that this refers to various types of trees that grow alongside the banks of the Wadis. And it says the word sukkah comes from the word root, sukkah, meaning to cover, and the main part of the sukkah is the roof or, or, or covering, which must be made from one or all the other materials. This walls, The walls can be made of any material available. And this is interesting because... God is the one that ultimately provides life and protects us. He is our sukkah. sukkah. So, that's interesting there, isn't it? So, getting back to the... Um, I wanted to talk briefly about that because I discovered something here that's interesting about the the four types. And I think it's very important that I, that I really talk about this because Yeshua talked about the four types as well. And I just found that out in his way. He talked about it. And first, let me read 
what uh, is found in this book, if I can find it here. Yeah, God's Appointed Times by Barney Caston. And he talks about the four types here uh, on page 94. It says, Each evening of the eight-day festival, special blessings are also said over the lulah, the palm branch, the etrog, citron, a fruit from Israel. These two items, along with the hadas, myrtle, and avara willow, form what is called the four species. They are wrapped together in order to be handheld for waving. And like I said, that's typically that that's not a Torah commandment. But they have done that traditionally, so it's a good tradition. They are wrapped together in order to be handheld for waving in every direction, symbolizing the harvest and God's omnipresence over his world. Although there seems to be a clear connection between the four species and the harvest theme of Sukkot, rabbis have also made some spiritual application for these symbols. It is taught that each of the species represents a different kind of person. The etrog, which tastes sweet and has a delightful aroma, represents a person with knowledge of the Torah and good deeds. Okay, so the lulah, which comes from a date palm, has a fruit that tastes sweet yet has no fragrance. Hence, some people have knowledge but no good deeds. The hadas is just the opposite, having a nice fragrance yet no taste, good deeds without true knowledge. Arava, since it possesses neither taste nor smell, represents the person who lacks both knowledge and deeds. Perhaps this can serve as a reminder that faith without works is dead. So that's important to understand. And this is an incredible um, prophecy here. And it has something to do with uh, perhaps the four species, but it's amazing that he talks about four types here. And I'm going to read this in the King James Version. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 to 23. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sour. Or the sower. When any one hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. Now, according to this, it says that the etrog, which tastes sweet and has a life aroma, represents a person with knowledge of the Torah and good deed. Well, actually, that's not the etrog. I would say that. That the Avara, uh, since it possesses neither taste nor smell, represents a person who lacks both knowledge and deeds. And this is actually equivalent to the person who hears a word and doesn't do anything. You know, and it says, uh, hear the word and understand it not, and then cometh the wicked one and catch away that which was sown in his heart. So that that is uh, symbolic of the. Let's see which one here, the, um, the Lula. The etra, which tastes sweet and hasn't, no, it's the arava, A-R-A-V-A. So the arava, since it possesses neither taste nor smell, represents the person who lacks both knowledge and, and deeds. So this is the, the in, in verse 19, this is the one that uh, has no works or knowledge. Now in verse 20, but he that receiveth the seed into the stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and a none with joy receiveth, Yet have he not root in himself, but endure for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. So which one of these is almost uh, similar or similar to it? Well, he says, the lulah, which comes from a day palm, has a fruit that tastes sweet, yet has no fragrance. So hence some people have knowledge, but no good deeds. So this is a person that obviously in... 
Matthew chapter 13, verse 20 to 21, that's that's the lulav. You have knowledge, but you don't have any deeds to back it up. So, Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that hears the word, and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke up the word, and he become unfruitful. So, again, this is representative of um, the lulav again. So, and the hottest, I'm trying to find it, because the hottest is good deeds without true knowledge. So I don't see that represented here. So, But this is somewhat similar to the four species. That's the point I'm trying to make here. And Matthew 13, verse 23, But he that receives seed into the, the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth, which also bear fruit, and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, Psalm 30, which is uh, symbolic of the etrog, which tastes sweet and has a delightful aroma, represents a person with knowledge of the Torah and good deeds. And that's what we need to do. We need to have knowledge of the Torah and good deeds. So that's what we need to aspire to. We need to aspire to that, ladies and gentlemen, and we need to uh, be the etrogs and aspire to, to good deeds and good works and to have knowledge and good deeds. That's that's what we want to do. That's what we want to do and that's what we should do. And this is what Sukkot pictures too. It pictures those those four species or in Yeshua's case it looks like it's three. But there there's there's three to four different types of uh, personalities or characters as far as God is concerned. So we need to um, understand that the parable of the sower there has something to do with the four species that the, the rabbis have uh, created, and it's a good tradition. I don't, I don't see how that's taking away from Sukkot, basically, the message of it, as you understand it. So so let's look. I'm in the recorded uh, session of this program, so... I'm going to continue on here. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. It says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant or a new agreement, not a new law, but a new agreement to keep the law with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, said the Lord. But this shall be a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. It will start with the houses of Israel, but will expand to the entire planet. Verse 34, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That is uh, Sukkot. That pictures uh, the day of Sukkot, folks. Which will happen after the destruction of the wicked upon the earth, when the, when the Messiah lands his feet on the Mount of Olives. And let's go to that situation in Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14, beginning in, in verse 1. 
says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the woman ravished or raped, and half the city shall go forth into captivity. Uh, that's not the start of the tribulation when half the city goes into captivity. The start of the tribulation is when the entire city goes into captivity, which is described in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, and in, in Matthew chapter 24, Luke 21, and Mark chapter 13. The entire, the whole city of Jerusalem will be trampled upon the Gentiles. That will start the tribulation. This is talking about a future event uh, because uh, it says right here, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And immediately after this, in verse 3, and, you know, other ministers said there's a gap, time gap between 2 and 3. I, I don't see that. What I do see is this, then shall the Lord go forth. So that's going to provoke him to come back when half the city goes into captivity and you're, getting, you're seeing women being raped and, and, and so forth, all this monkey business. That's when he's going to come back. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle, pictured by Yom Kippur here. All right, and his feet shall stand in that day. What day? The day where... Uh, he's, there's women being raped and half the city going into captivity and the residue of the people should not be cut off from the city that day. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and, and, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Ye shall flee, like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. That's including the angels and us, the believers. We will be changed at that time, immortal, and we're going to all land on the Mount of Olives with Yeshua. And we will fulfill Yom Kippur, um, Actually, he's going to fulfill it, but we're going to assist him, obviously, and the angels too. Verse 6, And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living water shall go out from Jerusalem, Half of them toward the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea, in summer and in winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord, not several lords uh, and several religions, but one Lord and his name one. Verse 10. All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Remen, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gates, until the place of the first gate. In other words, the temple will be, uh, it's already going to be built, but it's going to be restored and, and it's going to look a lot better. The Ezekiel temple will be constructed uh, when Yeshua lands his feet on the Mount of Olives. And the place of the first gate into the corner gate and from the tower of Hananiel into the king's wine presses. Verse 11, And men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more other destruction, no more other destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely safely inhabit it, verse 12. And this shall be the plague wherein the Lord, many people, they eisegesis this and said this is nuclear bombs. I I don't think that's the case here. This is talking about the brightness of his coming and how that brightness is going to melt people that are wicked. 
verse 12. And this shall be the plague wherein the Lord shall smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. That fought against Jerusalem. This is the plague. Their flesh shall consume while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume in their mouth. This is what's going to happen to the wicked. Verse 13. As soon as he lands his feet on the Mount of Olives, and it shall come to pass in that day that a great torment from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold every one on the hand of their neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of their neighbor. And Judah, the Jews, also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen around about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. Verse 15, And so shall be the plague of the horse, and of the mule, the camel, of the ass, and all the beasts that shall be in these tents as this plague. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Sukkot. So the Feast of Sukkot is the feast for the nations. Salvation for the nations. That's what this is. Verse 17, And it shall be that whosoever will not come up of all the families of the earth into Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. Um, the, the, the Festival of Tabernacles represents national or worldwide redemption and salvation. And then the Passover and, and uh, Shavuot represent individual. But God is an equal opportunity God. He wants salvation for all of mankind. And that's what Sukkot pictures, folks. All right, verse 17. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth into Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. No rain. Verse 18. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherein the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the feast of Sukkot. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay. And in that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yet every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see if therein. And in that day... There shall be no more Canaanite, that word should be translated, merchant, in the house of the Lord of hosts. Remember the Yeshua, the reason why he went uh, angry, and because there were merchants, people buying and selling in the temple. And he doesn't want that to occur in his physical temple, nor does he want that to occur in his spiritual temple, which are the believers. There should not be any buying and selling uh, in in the in the context of, of, of religious teaching and teaching and selling your your teachings. Anyway, Isaiah chapter sixty five, starting in verse seventeen. Isaiah chapter sixty five, verse seventeen. This For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. Actually, the process of creating a new heaven and new earth begins when Yeshua lands his feet on the Mount of Olives, but it ends after the great white throne judgment, which I'm going to talk about here shortly. For behold, I create new heavens, 
No, it doesn't end. It, it. Okay, what am I saying? It, the process begins when he lands his feet on the Mount of Olives, and it will be completed after the great white throne judgment as Revelation chapter 21, which I'll talk about next week, describes. All right, so in verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Verse 18, But be ye glad and rejoice forever, which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy, and I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people, and the voice of weeping shall be uh, more shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more hence an infant of days, nor an old man that has not filled his days, for the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be a curse. And as you'll see, uh, this has to be talking about the millennium period because. After the great white throne judgment and after the thousand years, which is the millennium, the Sukkot, the pre-Sukkot uh, situation, um, there will still be sin and there will still be death. But in the new heaven and new earth, there will not be any sin or death, as I'm going to explain next week. Verse 21, and they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. Verse 22, they shall not build and another inhabit they shall not plant and another eat, for as the day of the tree or the days of my people and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Verse 23, they shall not labor in vain nor bring forth, that's what we do today, or oh, don't we? We labor in vain. Uh, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and the offspring uh, with them. And so that's, that's interesting, that word offspring there. But I'm going to get into that next week. But and I'm going to jot this down here. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. And this is a beautiful scripture here, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and the dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So that's a picture of Sukkot. When he lands his feet on the Mount of Olives, there will be peace, peace finally on this earth. It would be peace, peace, peace. And right here, and there shall come forth, in Isaiah chapter 11, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This is the prophecy of the Messiah. Even the Jews understand this. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, which is to hate evil. Proverbs 8, verse 13. And shall make him of quick understanding, in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. So again, when he lands his feet on the Mount of Olives, we're not going to allow rapists, uh, rapists will not be allowed, uh, adulterers, whatever, it's going to be executed quickly. Verse 5, And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, I just read that to you, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. Verse 7, And the, and the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the suckling or the sucking child shall play on the hole of the ass, and the weaned child shall put his hand 
out on me on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, which it isn't now. That should tell you something. Why is the prophet stating here that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord? Many people think that's the case today. It's not. I mean, if you look at the joshuaproject.com uh, website or .org, only 2 billion people have even, actually only 4 billion people have actually heard of the name of Christ. And, of course, many of those people aren't keeping the entire law of God. If they were, the world would be at peace because that's what brings peace, keeping the Torah. But uh, this is an interesting prophecy here because it says in verse 9 of Isaiah chapter 11, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. It is not currently. And that's the reason why there's destruction on the earth right now. As the waters cover the sea. Verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand as an ensign, that's the Messiah again, as a flag, where do we get the concept of flags from? Of the people to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. That's the other nations. The other nations outside of the other Gentile or nations, which is Israel and Judah. The house of Israel and house of Judah, which will be united at this time. And the rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. And this is symbolized by uh, Sukkot as well. Um, actually, all three, you know, the Yom Tur, Yom Kippur, and, and Sukkot are all interwoven together. And this fall festival season symbolizes the time when the house of Judah and the house of Israel will be u united again into one nation, the house of Israel. And that's found in Ezekiel chapter 37. But in Isaiah 11, verse 11, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Isaiah, which is the area around the Middle East, not Germany, and from Egypt, and from Panthros, and from Cush, and from Elam, and from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea, which is all over the world, basically, islands of the sea. Uh, and he shall set up an ensign or flag for the nations, Inside in the original Hebrew means a flag or a sail, a flagstaff, a signal, okay, uh, for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is Ezekiel 37, come alive. Verse 13, the envy also of Ephraim shall depart. Ephraim uh, consists primarily today of the, the United States and the British Commonwealth of Nations. And the adversaries of Judah, that's the Jews, shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not envy Ephraim. Actually, in this context, it's referring to all the lost ten tribes of Israel, Ephraim. All right, and so it's saying that the, the house of Judah and the house of Israel won't be in conflict with each other anymore. And it says, uh, Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. Verse 14, But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west, and they shall spoil them on the east together, they shall lay, and this is the modern-day uh, Palestinians. Um, they inhabit uh, Palestine today. They shall spoil them for the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab. That's the Jordan area today. And the children of Ammon shall obey them. Verse 15, And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it in seven streams and make it, make it go over dry shot. 
okay, which uh, is talking about a, a slipper or something. It says, properly a sandal tongue, an extension of sandal or slipper. Verse 16, and there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall, or the remainder of his people, which shall be left from Isaiah, which again is the area of Iraq, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came out of the land of Egypt. So there's going to be a great exodus. And this was what occult pictures too. Um, everyone is going to be coming back to the land of Israel. Um, all the lost ten tribes of Israel, which I've repeatedly stated many times in this program, consists geographically of the United States, of Canada, of the countries in Northwestern Europe, South Africa, Australia, France, Britain, the countries in Northwestern Europe, New Zealand, and, of course, anyone that believes in King Messiah as being um, the Messiah are automatically grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. That is proven in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. The ultimate goal, the ultimate goal of God in reference to mankind is for all of mankind to worship him and, and to keep the Shabbat and the holy days and all the other commandments in the Bible. And that will occur. Isaiah chapter 66 states this. Isaiah chapter 66 starting in verse 22. For as the new heavens and new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain, verse 23. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and when you keep the new moon days, you're keeping the holy days, because you can't keep the holy days without calculating the new moon. Uh, and from one Shabbat to another shall all flesh, all of mankind, come worship before me, says the Lord of hosts. And worship involves caring about people. Verse 24, and caring about God. And verse 24, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of bodies of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die. This is talking about the millennium, because past the millennium you won't see dead bodies. Death will not exist. Um, for the, and the corruption will not be in the new heaven and the new earth. So this has to be talking about the millennium here. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die. Uh, talking about the worms that obviously get on dead bodies. There's going to be so many of them in the Valley of Gehenna at this time, during the millennium. Neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. All right, so that's talking about the bodies that will be dumped during the millennium, the bodies of those who don't want to obey, still stubborn, and they're going to get what they deserve. All right, and Revelation, you know, there's so many things I can talk about here, but, I, you know, I want to sum this up so that you'll understand what's going on. And I know many people probably never heard of the Festival of Tabernacles, but you must understand your Lord and Savior kept so cold. He stated that he, and uh, let's turn to uh, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So his Father's commandments involve also keeping Sukkot, and he did that every year while he was living on the earth, and so should we. Because there's a scripture in 1 John 2, verse 6, is that if we say we believe, let me quote this, 1 John 2, verse 6, it states here, he that says he abides in him himself also to walk, even as he walked, and he went to Jerusalem like many Jews back then, and he celebrated Sukkot, and so should we. 
All right, so Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established at the top of the mountains. Prophecy stating the fact that uh, on Mount Moriah, the temple will be built again and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. Verse 3. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Verse 4. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and shall beat their swords into plowshares, Yom Kippur again, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They won't learn war anymore. And I think this scripture, they made a, a statue with someone beating a, prow, a, a man, beating a plowshare at the, at the United Nations. And, and and they are fully aware of the Bible prophecies, and they know that God will come back and execute peace on the earth. Verse 5, O house of Jacob, which is all the tribes of Israel, including the Jews, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now this gives you a clue on the house of Jacob here, who, who they are today. Verse 6, Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob, because they be replenished from the east, and are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they please themselves in the children of strangers. Now, this is a key verse to identify who the house of Israel is today. <laughs> Their land also is full of silver and gold. Which land today, folks? Which land today is full of silver and gold, folks? Hmm? The United States and the British Commonwealth of Nations. Neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses. We're full of military armaments, aren't we? You know? uh, we're full of um, all kinds of things, right? Neither is there any end of their chariots. That's true. That's us. Their land also is full of idols, American idols, right? We all can we have all kinds of idols. We we um, care more about some so-called star, you know, life than caring about changing and, and doing something uh, of significance as far as helping other people. And they worship the work of their own hands, that which they own fingers have made. That's a perfect description of the United States and British Commonwealth of Nations, folks, and Canada and, and all the rest of the uh, the regions, uh, New Zealand, South Africa, France. Uh, we, we don't put God first. We know there's a God, but we don't put him first in, first in our lives. And, it, of course, it talks about uh, what's going to happen uh, at the beginning of the uh, first trumpet sound here, um, toward the end of this uh, passage here, and I'll go over that some other time. But anyway... Uh, let's turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Then we're going to read this whole chapter here to understand that this is picturing Sukkot. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain, a great chain in his hand. And he laid on to the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And so this is also a picture of Yom Kippur. To get sin, you have to, <laughs> to get sin, to start the, uh, the, the process of getting sin out of the way, you have to get rid of the, pro the cause of sin, which is the devil. So he's uh, getting rid of him here, and he's bounding him for a thousand years, God. And then verse 3, and cast him into the bottomless pit, 
and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive or trick the nations no more till all the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loose a little season. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse 5, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that had part in the first resurrection, on such the second death have no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Verse 7, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loose out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive or trick the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Verse 9, And they went up on the breath of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about and the, the beloved city. And a fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, or were, rather, because uh, that word was added, and shall be tormented day and night or forever and ever. That means the ages of the ages, which would end, those ages will end when the lake of fire um, will destroy death in the, in the spirit realm which is talked about here in the, in the final verse here, or near the final verse of this chapter. All right, so in verse 11, this is what I want to focus on here. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face and the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So, But that whole period is talking about a great white throne judgment that Yeshua talks about here. And let's turn to John chapter 7. And let's understand the great white throne judgment here. And this happens after the thousand years. All of humanity is resurrected, which a picture of is revealed in Ezekiel chapter 37. Of humanity that did not understand the true God will be resurrected and given an opportunity to understand the true God. John chapter 7, verse 37. This is what he talked about here. Uh, the last day of Sukkot, the seventh day of Sukkot, is what the great white throne judgment pictures. Uh, in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me and says, If any man, not just a Jew, but any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Verse 39. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they believe on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. All right, so he's talking about the seventh day of the feast, and I'm going to read something from David Stern here. Uh, it's on page 178 of his excellent Jewish New Testament commentary, uh, verse 37 of John chapter 7. On the last day of the festival, Hosanna Rabbah, literally on the last day, the great day of the festival, 
Greek Megal, great, corresponds to the Hebrew Rabbah. The seventh last day of Sukkot was its climax. Throughout the seven days of the festival, a special Kohen, or priest, had carried water in a gold pitcher from the pool of Siloam to be poured into a basin at the foot of the altar by the Kohen Haggadol, the high priest. It symbolized prayer for rain, which begins the next day on Shemini Atzeret, which we're going to talk about next week. And it also pointed toward the outward pouring of the uh, Rayak Hakadish Ruach, I'm sorry. The Ruach Hakadish, still trying to learn Hebrew, <laughs> the Holy Spirit, on the people of God. The rabbis associated the custom with Isaiah 12, verse 3. With joy shall you draw water from the wells of salvation in a suggestive reflection of how the holiday used to be celebrated. Today's Mokaran Jews pour water on each other at Sukkot. Hmm. And that's interesting. On the seventh day, the water pouring was accompanied by priests blowing gold trumpets, uh, Levites singing sacred songs, and ordinary people waving their lulahs and chanting the Hillel. Now, remember, what does the uh, lulah represent? Let me go back here. What does the uh, lulah represent? I was uh, reading that to you earlier here. Uh, let's find out what the lulah represents. Let's see. All right, the lulah, which comes from a date palm, has a fruit that tastes sweet, but yet has no fragrance. Hence, some people have knowledge but no good deeds. So, but we want to be arava, which um, the arava or the willow. We want to be willows. Uh, well, actually, willows. We don't want to be <laughs> willows either. It lacks both knowledge and, and, and deeds. What we want to be is the etros, which tastes sweet and has a delightful aroma, represents a person with knowledge of the Torah and good deeds. But the lulah has a fruit that tastes sweet, yet has no fragrance. Some people have knowledge, but no good deeds. And it's good to have knowledge, but we need to have good deeds as well. But getting back to the waving of the lulah here, uh, it says uh, that's focusing on knowledge, but we have to remember to have good deeds. And waving the lulahs and chanting the halal, which includes in his closing verses, Adonai, please save us. Adonai, please prosper us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. We have blessed you out of the house of Adonai. God is Adonai, and he has given us light. The words, please save us, lead to the day being called Hosanna Rabbah, the great Hosanna. This prayer had messianic overturns, as it is seen from its use when Yeshua made his triumphal entry in Jerusalem a few days before his execution. This is interesting. Matthew chapter 21, verse 9, and, and Mark chapter 11, verse 9 to 10. It was also a prayer for salvation from sin. Salvation from sin for Hosanna Rabbah was understood to be absolutely final chance to have one's sins for the year forgiven. On Rosh Hashanah, one asked to be inscribed in the book of life. And on Yom Kippur, one hopes to have that inscription sealed, yet in Jewish tradition there remain opportunity for forgiveness up to Hosanna Rabbah. In addition, a connection between possession and the Rauk, Rauk, Hakadosh. Let me look at this again. I'm always making this mistake. <laughs> I think it's the Rauk, but let me uh, let me uh, make sure that that's the case here. I think it's the Ruach. I guess I don't know. Let's see. I'm just still still trying to struggle with Hebrew here. Um, let me take a look here. I think it's the Ruach. Ruach. 
Ruach. Yes, Ruach. Ruach. All right. So, getting back, a connection between the possession of the Ruach Hakodesh and ecstasy or religious joy. That's the Holy Spirit. Ruach Hakodesh is found in the ceremony of water drawing. Simchat. Bent ha shaw evet, the feast of water drawing on the festival of Sukkot. The Mishnah said that he who had never seen the ceremony, which was accompanied by dancing, singing, and music, had never seen true joy. Yet this was also considered the ceremony in which the participants, as it were, drew inspiration from the Holy Spirit itself, which can only be possessed by those whose hearts are full of religious joy. From this passage, we also learned that Yeshua and his Talmudim, or disciples, like other Jews, observed at least portions of the orator and did not utterly reject the traditions of men, since the water-drawing ceremony is specified not in the Tanakh but in the Mishnah. It was in the midst of this water-pouring, trumpet-blasting, palm-waving, um, psalm-chanting, and static joy on the part of the people seeking forgiveness, and in the presence of all 24 divisions of the priesthood, see Luke 1, verse 5, that Yeshua cried out in the temple course, If anyone is thirsty, let him keep coming to me and drinking. Whoever trusts in me, as the Tanakh says... Rivers of living water will flow from its inmost being. Compare Isaiah 44, verse 3, 55, verse 1, 58, verse 11, and also woman at the well above uh, in uh, John 4, verse 6 to 15, and the ultimate fulfillment at Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. In effect, Yeshua was declaring, I am the answer to your prayers. His dramatic cry supported by full uh, panoply of temple ritual was not misunderstood as verses 40 to 43 make abundantly clear. His subsequent proclamation, his subsequent proclamation, I am the light of the world, also based on the passage of Psalm 118, quoted above, provoked an even more agitated reaction. So anyway, that tells you what this day represented. It definitely represents the great white throne judgment, and people will be given an opportunity for salvation. In Luke chapter 11, proves that people will be resurrected and given an opportunity. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 31, the queen of the south will appear at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Shlomo or Solomon, and what is here now is greater than Shlomo. In other words, Yeshua was greater than Solomon. In verse 32, the the people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they turned to God from their sins when Jonah preached, and what is here now is greater than Jonah. So that tells you that the people of Nineveh would be resurrected and the Queen of South, and for them to be condemning the generation of Yeshua is telling you that obviously they're going through some kind of judgment period uh, for them to be able to condemn someone else. So but anyway, uh, that that's pretty interesting there, isn't it? And that only uh, tells you what this Sukkot, um, which is coming up soon, I know on the Jewish calendar, let me take a look here, because I'm going by the new moon calendar, but I know on the Jewish calendar it uh, begins, um, I think, a day earlier. Let me take a look at um, if I can access it here. Uh, I have a uh, computerized uh, calendar. of. Um, so let me go to the next month, all right? So Sukkot begins on Monday, according to the Jewish calendar. It's coming Monday. And according to those in the new moon calendar, it begins on Tuesday. All right, so for those who want to celebrate, you should celebrate it because Yeshua celebrated it. Happy Sukkot, happy Feast of Tabernacles, 
please realize that this picture is the beginning of the great God creating a new heaven and a new earth, which will be ultimately fulfilled uh, at the end of the great white throne judgment, where death will be destroyed, and the Satan will be destroyed, and all wickedness will be destroyed. And so next week we're going to talk about Shemini Atzeret, or Shemini Atzeret, uh, the new heavens and the new earth, um, a a new universe basically that where corruption and sin and death will no longer exist. So until next week, and God willing, may God bless and keep you. Shalom, peace. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse.